0: Beethoven's face was unsightly, red and markedly disfigured. It was described as giving him the terrifying countenance of a leper in one memoir. His life mask in 1812 shows areas of marked lumpiness and scarring and thickening of the skin, including some punched out scars quite unlike those of smallpox. His portraits show a flushing of the cheekbones and nose. His high colour was frequently remarked on. That quote comes from a paper by Milo Keynes, which discusses the possibility that Beethoven's near lifelong poor health could be due to systemic lupus erythematosus, the topic of today's podcast. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute.
1: And I am Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP Medical Educator and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Blake and I are your co-hosts today. As a reminder for our GP listeners, Spot Diagnosis has been accredited with RACGP and ACRAM. There is one CPD point per episode, so approximately nine to ten points per season. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the episodes, and fill in a brief evaluation form on Spot Diagnosis au. repeat spotdiagnosis.org.au
0: Today is a special episode as we have two guests with us. Associate Professor Mandana Nickpour is a rheumatologist at St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne with a special interest in clinical care and research in connective tissue diseases. Associate Professor Alvin Chong will be familiar to many of our listeners from previous episodes. He is a consultant dermatologist working at St. Vincent's Hospital Melbourne and at the Skin Health Institute as the head of the Transplant Dermatology Clinic.
1: Welcome Mandy and Alvin. Wonderful to be with you.
2: It's good to be back. In fact, I don't think I've ever left.
1: Mandy, as usual, we invite our special guests to share an interesting bit of trivia about their topic of discussion. Do you have something interesting to share with our listeners about connective tissue diseases?
3: Well, Annalise, I think it's fair to say that until recent years, most people had not heard of connective tissue diseases, or lupus for that matter. Greater public awareness has come from some celebrities affected by lupus sharing their experiences in social media, including the singer Selena Gomez who has spoken about her experience of needing a kidney transplant for damage to her kidneys caused by lupus. As we'll discuss shortly, connective tissue diseases are complex, but greater openness about these conditions can raise awareness and ultimately help improve outcomes.
0: Andy, can you start us off with a very broad overview of what connective tissue diseases are?
3: Connective tissue diseases are a group of autoimmune conditions that have the potential to involve multiple organ systems, including the skin, joints, and internal organs. CTDs include systemic lupus erythematosus, commonly called lupus or SLE, systemic sclerosis, commonly called scleroderma, and inflammatory myositis. There are many other connective tissue diseases, but in this episode, we'll be focusing on SLE.
0: Right, so connective tissue diseases is kind of an umbrella term for all of these other conditions that you've just mentioned. And Alvin, what is the role of dermatologists in managing patients with connective tissue diseases?
2: As Mandy mentioned, connective tissue diseases can affect the skin. And when they do, these findings can be very, very distinctive. For example, you've heard of the butterfly rash in systemic lupus, right? So these rashes and these manifestations can be useful in diagnosing a connective tissue disease. And the other thing is that these cutaneous manifestations will also need to be managed in their own right.
1: Why do
3: connective tissue diseases occur? We don't know why CTDs occur, but the prevailing thinking is that pathogenesis is a multi-hit process where genetic susceptibility couples with one or more environmental exposures such as inhaled dust or toxins, UV light, viral infections, acute physical or psychological trauma, and hormonal factors. The highly publicised recent cases of scleroderma in stonemasons who inhales silica dust in the process of dry-cutting engineered stone, has reminded us of the potential role of environmental exposures in the development of CTDs. That said, for most patients, a clear environmental exposure can't be identified. How commonly do we see
1: patients with these conditions?
3: Lupus has a frequency of 70 cases per 100,000 so it's uncommon but not rare. Scleroderma has a frequency of 250 per million and dermatomyositis occurs with a frequency of 1 per 100,000. So there are approximately 20,000 people with lupus in Australia, around 6,000 people with scoroderma and about three to 500 people with dermatomyositis.
0: Are there certain patient groups who are more at risk?
3: CTDs occur more commonly in women. In lupus, the female to male ratio is 7 to 1, in scleroderma 5 to 1, and in dermatomyositis 4 to 1. But of course, we also see men with CTDs, and in some CTDs like scleroderma, the disease can take on a more severe course in men who tend to have a worse prognosis.
1: Do we see CTDs, that is connective tissue diseases, more frequently in certain racial groups?
3: We're still learning about the epidemiology and course of disease in individuals of different racial backgrounds. We know, for example, that lupus is not only more frequent, but also more severe in Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, African-Americans and Southeast Asians, we also know that African-Americans have a higher mortality in scleroderma than those from other racial backgrounds. These differences in outcomes may be partly genetic, but also partly related to socioeconomic factors, including access to treatments.
0: Mandy, do we know why these diseases occur more frequently in women?
3: We don't know for sure why CTDs are more common in women. Female sex hormones, in particular oestrogen, may be one possible explanation, and we do see more lupus in women of childbearing age, while use of oestrogen-containing oral contraceptives can be associated with increased risk of mild to moderate lupus flares.
1: What accounts for the different clinical manifestations seen in the various connective tissue diseases?
3: The different manifestations of various CTDs continues to fascinate and bewilder those who treat these conditions. It's incredible to see that in the same family, one person has lupus while another might have scleroderma. There are definitely overlapping features among the CTDs. But why in lupus we can have a butterfly rash, whereas in scleroderma we have hardening of the skin, is something we simply have no explanation for. Different aberrations in the immune system and loss of tolerance to certain autoantigens and certain tissues could explain the different manifestations and also different responses to targeted treatments.
0: I think it's time for our first skin tip. Connective tissue diseases, or CTDs, are a group of autoimmune conditions that can affect multiple organ systems and are thought to be due to a combination of genetic susceptibility and environmental exposures. Right, let's talk about our first specific connective tissue disease. Remember, connective tissue diseases being an umbrella term. Mandy, it's a big question, but what is systemic lupus erythematosus?
3: Systemic lupus is a multi-organ connective tissue disease, or CTD, that can affect the immune system with generation of certain characteristic autoantibodies and presence of low complement. In the skin, the classic manifestations are photosensitivity and rashes, and Alvin will talk more about these shortly. The mucous membranes can also be affected with oral and nasal ulcers. The joints are commonly involved not just with a rheumatoid-like arthritis, but also with arthralgia, often in the absence of clinically apparent synovitis. Mandy, how does lupus affect the internal organs? Cytopenias can frequently occur in lupus. A potentially serious complication is kidney involvement or nephritis. Other disease manifestations include Raynaud's phenomenon, and vasculitis. Heart and lung involvement may also occur, including pericarditis, myocarditis, and pleurisy. Less frequently, we see nervous system involvement affecting either peripheral nerves, cranial nerves, spinal cord, or brain. Seldom do our patients have the full hand of disease manifestations. Some individuals can have cutaneous lupus with or without antinuclear antibody or ANA, but without any other serologic or clinical features of lupus. These cases are termed cutaneous lupus, and we'll hear more about this from Alvin.
1: We mentioned before that CTDs are more common in women. Can you tell us a little bit about the typical age of onset for this condition?
3: Yes, lupus typically affects young women of childbearing age, although rarely young men are affected too. There is a smaller second peak in the bimodal onset of lupus later in life in the 60s and 70s. And in that later peak, the female to male ratio is almost equal.
1: Can you share a story with us about a patient you have looked after with systemic lupus? I'm
3: currently looking after a patient who is age 20, and she first presented with lupus at the age of 14. She presented with a typical butterfly facial rash, cytopenias, that is anemia, low white cell count, and low platelets. She had positive anti-DNA antibodies and low complement. Over time, she was treated with sun protection, topical and systemic steroids, and hydroxychloroquine. When I took over her care 12 months ago, she had active disease with ongoing cytopenias, rash, alopecia, Raynaud's phenomenon, chill brains, sore joints, and severe fatigue. As anti-DNA antibody is a risk factor for lupus nephritis, I remain continually vigilant and monitor for this and check her urine every two to three months. To treat her active disease, I added mycophenolate as an immunosuppressive agent with some good results and have optimized hydroxychloroquine dose to five milligram per kilogram per day. My alternate goal is to taper prednisolone to less than five milligram daily or as close as I can once her disease is under control as minimising steroid use long-term is very important in lupus management.
1: She's a young lady and she will have to live with this disease potentially for the rest of her life. What impact has this had on her?
3: I have involved a dermatologist colleague to optimise management of mucocutaneous manifestations of my patient's lupus, which has had a big impact on her self-esteem. We're also working through the psychosocial impact of having a chronic disease that affects physical appearance, physical function, and general quality of life with the help of her GP and a psychologist. When this patient first came to see me, she had a lot of questions, not only about what the future held in general in terms of her medical condition, but also the impact of lupus on her choice of contraceptive and her ability to have children later in life.
2: Thanks, Mandy. I think it really, uh, you know, you've illustrated how wide the impact of a systemic disease like this can be. Now, my question is, Mandy, this lady that you saw, can she safely have children?
3: Well, Alvin, pregnancy in lupus is certainly possible. And I have looked after many women with lupus who have successfully completed pregnancy and had healthy children. The key to this is to enter pregnancy with well-controlled lupus and have careful monitoring during pregnancy to make sure the disease doesn't become active and the pregnancy is progressing well. The postpartum period is a time when lupus can flare and vigilant monitoring is important.
1: Mandy, going back a little bit, you mentioned before that sun protection was a part of the management of your patient. What is the role of UV radiation in the pathogenesis of lupus?
3: Generally, the role of UV light in lupus pathogenesis highlights the importance of the skin in immune and autoimmune responses, because the skin, along with the lungs and gastrointestinal tract, is the major interface for the body's exposure to the outside world.
0: Alvin, it's your time to shine, but hopefully with not too much UV radiation. We've heard mention of the classic butterfly rash already, but this is a dermatology podcast after all. So can you take us through the skin manifestations of lupus?
2: Sure. So there are specific and non-specific features of lupus, but it's the specific features that I want to talk about, and we can divide them broadly into three main categories. There's acute cutaneous lupus, subacute cutaneous lupus, and chronic cutaneous lupus, and they're all different. So you know that type of classic cutaneous manifestation you get with systemic lupus, and these are the kind that you read about in textbooks. You have a butterfly rash. It's called a butterfly rash because the cheeks are inflamed with the nose, and it just looks like a butterfly's on your face. You get photosensitivity, and that's called acute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, or ACLE. In ACLE, the inflammation in the skin is significant and quite severe. So patients often have erythema, edema, itching, and burning sensation affecting the face, chest, upper back, shoulders, and forearms, all the parts of the skin which are exposed to the sun. But because the rash is superficial and the inflammation is superficial, once the rash heals, they are not usually left with scarring. They have some redness, but that's about it. Now, ACLE is often accompanied by systemic symptoms like arthritis, uh, like mentioned above, And many of these patients will also fulfill the SLE criteria. On the other end of the spectrum, we have chronic cutaneous lupus, also known as discoid lupus. And these patients get inflamed scaly plaques. So it's not diffuse; It's more like plaques on the scalp, the face, the ears, again, sun-exposed parts. Now, the lesions histologically in discoid lupus is much deeper. And the inflammation goes into the dermis, So when the patients heal, you get scarring. And if that happens in the scalp, you get something called scarring alopecia, which is areas of permanent hair loss. But interestingly, patients with discoid lupus rarely have systemic symptoms. So it's part of the lupus spectrum, but they don't have SLE. So you're noticing a seal. Seal has very severe discoid lupus in his youth, and it has left him with facial scarring. And some people confuse that with tribal markings. Now, in between... Acute cutaneous and discoid lupus, you have something called subacute cutaneous lupus. Here, the lesions are characterized by polycyclic or annular or papular lesions on photosensitive skin. And about a third to half of these patients would fulfill the criteria for SLE. The other thing is conditions don't read textbooks. So very occasionally uh, you see overlap between these classic manifestations. So patients with SLE may have some features uh, of discoid lupus, Patients with SLE may have little discoid areas as well to deal with.
0: So just to summarize that, in chronic cutaneous lupus erythematosus or DLE, we have these scarring lesions and those patients are less likely to have systemic lupus. But on the other hand, we have patients with acute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, the classic butterfly rash, and it's those patients that are much more likely to have systemic lupus. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. And then sort of in the middle, we have this subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus variant, which has a slightly higher risk of systemic disease. That's more than the chronic discoid lupus Correct. It's kind of like an
2: in-between manifestation.
0: Okay. Thanks for that. And you mentioned specific and non-specific. What are the non-specific manifestations of
2: lupus? So non-specific manifestations, there's a really long list, but they include things like vasculitis. The hair loss, alopecia, not scarring alopecia, but just general hair loss, mouth and nasal ulceration, Raynaud's Phenomenon, Chilblains, livedo Reticularis. But these are things that don't kind of point towards lupus per se, but they can occur in patients with lupus.
1: Going back to discoid lupus, can you describe a patient you have treated with this, Alvin?
2: Yes. So at St. Vincent's, the room and derm teams have looked after a, a male patient in his 50s for a number of years and- he had really severe discoid lupus and you know, it wasn't helped by him having an outdoor occupation. So he would come in with large areas of inflammation on his scalp and his skin, leaving him with big areas of scarring. And over the years, you know, we've tried anti-malarials and immunosuppression without much benefit. But I think Mandy, one of your colleagues, gave him rituximab. And after two doses, he had recovered so well he actually went overseas for a sunny holiday pre-COVID and he came back completely surprisingly with a suntan and no lupus flare.
0: So it's really interesting again to see the interaction between UV radiation causing damage to the skin, which releases those autoantigens, and then the immune system reacting and that's set off his flares traditionally. Is that right? That's correct.
1: It's nice hearing a good success story. Is the skin biopsy helpful in diagnosing cutaneous lupus? Sometimes.
2: So if I know that a patient has systemic lupus and then develops a classic butterfly rash, uh, then there really is no point. It doesn't add anything. But if you have a patient with an undiagnosed rash, for example, some scaly plaques in the face where the differential diagnosis is broader, then I like to confirm the diagnosis with histology because treatment is often prolonged And can be fairly toxic. So immunosuppressive medications, particularly in a time of pandemic, shouldn't really be entered into lightly.
1: Say that this is an appropriate test. Is there a specific way that this biopsy should be done and why?
2: We're going to perform a biopsy and we need to do a a punch biopsy for classic histopathology. So that's doing a punch biopsy and putting it into formalin for normal H&E staining. But you also need to do an additional biopsy for direct immunofluorescence. This is not sent in formalin, but in saline, so gauze. Performing direct immunofluorescence increases the specificity of the biopsy. So if you have a positive test, like a lupus band, it means that lupus can be ruled in. It's time for skin tip
0: number two. There are three specific cutaneous manifestations of lupus. They are acute cutaneous lupus, which occurs with systemic lupus, subacute lupus erythematosus, which is characterized by photosensitivity and occasionally systemic symptoms, and chronic cutaneous lupus erythematosus, which causes scarring, but is usually not associated with systemic symptoms.
1: So Alvin, once you confirm cutaneous lupus, what investigations should we do?
2: But first, I look for clues on history and examination, so joint pains, weight loss, feeling unwell, etc. In terms of investigations, I usually do blood tests like an ANA and ENA renal function and urinalysis.
3: And Alvin, you might also want to consider anti dsdna antibodies, but by the time these patients are seen by a rheumatologist, there may be various other tests added, including complements and antiphospholipid antibodies.
0: But Mandy the ANA test can be a double-edged sword and you can land yourself into trouble if you order it in the wrong patient. When is ANA testing helpful?
3: The presence of ANA staining, irrespective of teeter and staining pattern, is now one of the essential requirements of fulfilling the diagnostic criteria for lupus. In other words, an individual with negative ANA will not be able to fulfill these criteria. So in this regard, ANA testing has a very high negative predictive value to rule out lupus, although rare cases of ANA negative lupus are reported. But ANA is not specific for connective tissue diseases, and up to 30% of the general population have ANA of 1 in 40 And above, and only 1% of the population actually have an ANA associated autoimmune disease. So, the diagnosis of connective tissue disease or lupus is based on the constellation of clinical and laboratory features and isn't based on ANA alone.
0: You just alluded to the fact that there are two parts to an ANA result. Firstly, the quantity of ANA in the serum. And secondly, the pattern the anti-nuclear antibodies make when they bind to the nucleus. So certain ANA patterns are more commonly associated with specific connective tissue diseases. Mandy, which ANA patterns are seen in lupus? And do the patterns differ for cutaneous lupus versus systemic lupus?
3: Typically, ANA staining in lupus is homogeneous, although speckled and nucleolar staining may be present, often signifying the presence of antibodies to extractable nuclear antigens, including Rho and La. In cutaneous lupus, ANA staining may not always be present, although it is often present, especially in association with Rho and La antibodies which are an accompaniment of subacute cutaneous lupus, which Alvin has talked about.
0: What are extractable nuclear antigens and what is the significance of these?
3: Antibodies to extractable nuclear antigens can be seen in a proportion of people with lupus and although not always present in all cases, are included among the diagnostic criteria for lupus. In particular, anti-SM antibody is highly specific for lupus and anti-Rho and LA antibodies are commonly seen in lupus and are associated with sicker symptoms, that is dry eyes and mouth, and certain rashes of lupus.
1: I think it's time for our next skin tip. Up to 30% of the general population may have a positive ANA. Because of this, only patients with suspected rheumatological disease should be tested for ANA. Once positive, ANA should never be tested again as it rarely changes and is not a marker of disease activity.
0: Mandy, how do you begin to even treat lupus? It sounds like an incredibly complex condition with lots of moving parts. Perhaps let's just start with the general measures first.
3: Well, Blake, the general measures include sun protection, stopping smoking, healthy nutrition, adequate exercise
0: and rest. Sounds like those things I tell my patients to do all the time. And pharmacological management?
3: The medications we deploy in lupus include anti-malarials, most commonly hydroxychloroquine, which is used long-term in all patients except where contraindicated. Corticosteroids are often needed early in the disease course and to treat flares, but our goal is to use as little as needed and to try and taper to a minimum maintenance dose, ideally zero. Immunosuppressives such as methotrexate and sulfasalazine can be used for lupus arthritis and azathioprine for other lupus features, but mycophenolate has the most data in support of its efficacy in lupus nephritis and in lupus in general. Patients with lupus who are often young women of childbearing age need counselling regarding family planning and pregnancy, along with screening for cardiovascular risk factors and prevention of osteoporosis.
2: Can I also add that in acute inflammatory phase of cutaneous lupus, we often need to use copious amounts of potent topical steroids to settle the inflammation down. And I've also injected plaques of discoid lupus on the face and scalp with intralesional steroid. I also find that systemic corticosteroids use short-term judiciously and hydroxychloroquine to be really important treatments of the skin manifestations of lupus.
1: I think it's time for another skin tip. The management of lupus includes strict sun protection, topical steroids for cutaneous lupus, hydroxychloroquine, and systemic immunosuppression. In
0: 1894, J.S. Payne described the first successful treatment of lupus with quinine, an antimalarial derived from the bark of the cinchona tree. How do antimalarials work in the treatment of lupus? The exact mechanism
3: of action of antimalarials in lupus isn't known, but the prevailing thinking is that antimalarials work on multiple aspects of the immune system. Antimalarials have been shown to have important actions on toll like receptors, which are very important in innate immune responses. They also have an effect on lysosomal pH, thereby inhibiting intracellular toll like receptors. And antimalarials also decrease secretion of monocyte derived pro inflammatory cytokines. So the net effect is an anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effect.
2: Yeah, anti are interesting. As a dermatologist, I almost consider them to be like an ingested molecular systemic sunblock. You take it orally and it tunes down the skin's reaction to the sun. Unfortunately, it's not very effective in treating COVID-19.
1: Are there any new promising agents in the management of lupus? Well, Annalise, tacrolimus and voclosporin, which
3: are both calcineurin inhibitors, have been shown in recent trials to be efficacious in lupus nephritis. Anti-B lymphocyte stimulator, or anti-Bliss monoclonal antibody treatment in the form of belimumab has been shown to have modest benefit in lupus and has been available in North America and Europe for the past 10 years, though unfortunately we don't have this drug available yet in Australia. Rituximab, an anti-CD20 B-cell depleting treatment, is sometimes used to treat cytopenias in lupus as there's evidence for its use in hemolytic anemia and immune thrombocytopenia. However, although rituximab is sometimes used off-label to treat other refractory manifestations of lupus, including cutaneous lupus as used in Alvin's patient, two large trials failed to show efficacy in treatment of lupus nephritis and non-renal lupus. Anti-interferon type 1 receptor antagonist, anifrolumab was recently shown in a landmark trial to be efficacious for treatment of moderate to severe lupus in those who have failed first-line treatment. This is a treatment that we may have available in our armamentarium in the future. So really, we're beginning to appreciate that lupus is a very heterogeneous disease. When it comes to targeted treatments, different agents might work with differing efficacy for different manifestations. In the future, we might find that certain treatments are more effective for cutaneous lupus, while others are more effective for joint disease.
1: Before we move on, are there any other points that you think are important for our listeners to know, Mandy? We've talked about the central
3: role that hydroxychloroquine plays in the management of lupus. It's important that patients on long-term hydroxychloroquine have annual to biannual eye screening to monitor for retinal toxicity. I should also mention the low risk of congenital heart block in mother's who have anti row antibodies, as this risk can be diminished substantially with hydroxychloroquine treatment during pregnancy.
0: I get the last skin tip. Patients on hydroxychloroquine long-term should have regular eye examination to monitor for retinal toxicity.
1: Alvin, do you have anything else to add?
2: Well, I just want to highlight that there are several differential diagnoses for a facial rash, like a malar rash. And whilst lupus is one of them, you have to think about things like rosacea, severic dermatitis, and even facial eczema. So sometimes it's actually very difficult to differentiate between these clinically, and you need to very carefully take a history and do a good examination. And occasionally a skin biopsy is needed.
0: That concludes the first episode of our two-part series on connective tissue diseases. Hopefully thinking about lupus no longer leaves you feeling red in the face.
1: Thank you, Mandy and Alvin, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Been a pleasure to be here. We would like to thank
0: our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute.
1: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner.
0: For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. Don't forget to join us for part two, where we'll cover dermatomyositis and systemic sclerosis in more detail.
1: Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive Institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.